Good morning and welcome to episode 58 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you joined me this morning. The sun just came up over the eastern ridge here at our farm an hour later, according to the clock than usual, which is endlessly confusing to me. <laughs> I'll be messed up for like two weeks because my eye really adjusts to the light and the time o'clock and when they mess with it. Wow, it's so confusing. But welcome. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm going to talk to you about some issues of very late winter, very early spring, depending on where you are. Here in the mountains of Western North Carolina, we are about to start a warmish spell after a long cold spell in February. Overall, it was actually a, a fairly, a very warm February, but was just cold enough to keep the bees from flying. And pretty consistently, I think my bees were probably locked in their colonies more than is typical from the rain and the wind and the just chilly temperatures as opposed to getting really cold and then warming up with those faux spring days that we more typically had. They were locked up pretty steadily. I got worried quite a bit about their stores, so I went out and did a lot of tilt testing. That has gone very well out in the outside yards. I have had some trouble in the bee barn as I learn on my first round on that. It is quite difficult to tell how many stores the little tiny nukes have. And full confession here, I probably killed a couple. <laughs> well, okay, I know I killed a couple. There's no probably to it. They did not have stores. And so regardless of what happened to them, I'm going to count that as beekeeper error and try not to do that again. So I've made new lists on what to do better, one of which is an easier way to check on their stores with very small hives. And again, these are baby hives. These are not dwindled full-size hives, but these are little baby starter hives that I was seeing if I could get through the winter. It's hard to check their stores without getting opening them up. And the problem in the shed is it is often warm enough that they will fly if I open them up. Outside, they'd probably just fly back to the entrance, but because it's a shed, sometimes they get confused and lost in the shed. And so that is something I've got to work out with the shed. As you know, it's an experiment. Let me not talk about that <laughs> because my goal is regular everyday outside bee talk. And here in the yard at Five Apple, it has been a pretty good winter, knock on wood. We're not quite done yet up in the high mountains. It's been a pretty good winter. I've had a survival rate of a little better than three out of four, and that's not my best by any means. But per usual, I'm doing a lot of experimenting, and some of those losses are the experimental hives. At least two were definitely mite-related. I could tell that from the fallout on the, the board. Let's see, what do you call that? The board that comes out that if you do Varroa counts that way. Um, so I know that that was definitely a problem with those. I am not happy about any losses. I do know the only comfort in that is that the colonies that die in the winter did not spread their mites around to anybody. They went down with the ship. So that's not exactly cheery news, but it's better than it could be. But what I want to talk to you about today is the two things seasonally that are going on. One is at the very end of winter and the very beginning of spring, what I am watching out for, the danger that I'm watching out for for my bees who have made it through the winter is starvation. It can really happen quick to any hive, unless they just had a ton of honey. But for any hive that you went out there and you did your tilt test or you checked on them and you're like, oh, they've got some, I think they'll make it. For those, this can be a real touch and go season because to place this in what's going on in the bee's life cycle, 
those winter bees that live longer than the average bee, they are doing their final contribution to the colony, which is raising up the generation of bees that are going to go forward into 2020 and have a season. So the winter bees in their last work are raising up this batch of brood. So the steady rate that they've been using honey through the winter, a more or less steady rate, suddenly goes dramatically up. Now, they are also without, if a beekeeper is not keeping an eye on them, they are also usually toward the end of their stores. So it can be very touch and go as to whether their, whether nectar becomes available out in the environment in time to feed all those baby bees that they are raising the brood. If there's not, if they begin to run out of stores, one of the first things they do is cannibalize the brood. Uh, They don't waste anything, so if they can't feed them, they eat them. (laughs) You don't want that to happen because those are your replacement troops. Those are who are going to really start your colony going strong in the spring. And of course, if they run out of food too much, they can pretty quickly starve. Sometimes there is actually nectar and pollen out there in the environment, but it may be too chilly windy or rainy for them to go get it. For example, in my area, red maple bloom, that's our first big pollen and nectar source for the bees. A lot of times there are red maple blooms on the trees, but the bees can't get to them because of the the chill or the wind or the rain. Similarly, things can be going well. Let's say we're having a warm spell. They're out there just gathering, gathering. Some other pollen that I see them on early this year are the hazelnuts that I have planted on the farm, the alder that grows along the creek. They're into that. And then, of course, the red maple, which is the big one. Just an aside, I hope newer beekeepers, you will be asking your mentors, what is your kind of your signal pollen at the beginning of the season? If you get to know this, then when you see that color pollen going in in the early spring, you'll know they're they're onto it. But also, if you'll find out what your early season sources of pollen and nectar are, this is a really great signal. So, for example, when I see the red maple blooms on the trees, I get so excited. And I also kind of mentally keep a mental count of, you know, are the bees able to fly in time to get it? And that, of course, depends on your area. And what your first bloom and pollen is could easily be something entirely different. So definitely ask your mentor this. For me, because I am so forgetful, I found this is a a great thing to ask by email. I often will ask, particularly when I had first moved back to North Carolina from Arkansas and was getting used to the, the whole bloom cycle here, I would email my local mentor and say, hey, what what's going to be blooming or what's blooming? How long do you think it's going to bloom? And he happened to know all that. So he would email me back dates and weeks of the month that I could expect to see this tree or that bush. And it was great because now I have those emails. And so when I forget, <laughs> which I still do, um, the exact date, of when to expect things, I can just search my email instead of bothering him again. This is the same mentor that also sends out those January emails that I just look forward to every single year where he's like, he's a retired Marine and where he will say, get your supers ready. If you don't get them ready now, you're going to regret it when the flow starts. And that's like the whole email. <laughs> and I just love that because it's the sign that the, the, it's the sign that we have passed the solstice threshold and we are heading toward what to me becomes real life again, which is uh, bee season and spring and gardening season and all that. So by all means, find out what your signal plants are. Usually they're trees, at least in the familiars that the areas in the east that I'm familiar with. And red maple is probably going to be up there if you are in the east. 
And I probably need to say in the eastern U.S. because I am just amazed at how many people from different parts of the world listen to this podcast. And hello. And if you're in a different part of the world, please send me an email. Say hi from wherever you are. My email is blueridge714 at gmail.com. Oh, and before I went on that aside, I'm not even sure if I said this, but I'm going to do it now. That is one of the other ways they can accidentally run low on food is that maybe it is even becoming available in the environment. They're raising up a bunch of brood, which is their job. That's their mission right now. And then you have a long stretch of rain or chilly uh, cold snap that lasts for a week. That can really set them back again with the brood. And this is completely beekeeper uh, preventable, which those are the setbacks and the errors that I like to focus on, the things that I can control, and them having enough food is one of those. So we've talked about kind of where this fits in the bees' life cycle. The winter bees are raising up that next generation um, and some of the challenges they are facing. Now I want to talk about some of the the myths that I hear um, mostly online (laughs) about feeding sugar regular listeners, you have heard me say this before, but there's a lot of misconception, in my opinion, that feeding sugar syrup or sugar in any of its form is bad for the bees in the sense that it props up weak genetics. Now, let me just go back. The commercial tendency to take all of the bees' stores and feed them entirely on sugar products through the winter, in my opinion, is not good for the bees. I would hope that an ethical beekeeper would make every effort to leave enough of their actual real honey for them to get through the winter over. That would be my hope. And in, in my experience, the bees do better. They, they just visibly do better in my yard on their own honey versus the times that they have either accidentally run out because of weather issues or if their beekeeper just wasn't on top of things and had to substitute. They do better on honey, in my opinion, period of end of story. However, they also do dead if they starve to death. And it's completely preventable. That amount of sugar in the sense of emergency feeding, I have not seen cause any uh, health problems with the bees, particularly no long-term health problems because being dead from starvation is the most long-term health problem that you can have. But I see a lot of misinformation about, oh, sugar is bad for the bees, A, and then B, that it will prop up weak genetics to feed the bees. And this, in my opinion, is another misconception, a kind of shallow understanding perhaps of what the larger goal is. If you have not so good genetics in your colony, and that's extremely possible because there's lots of genetic sets of bees out there that are just not up to this new, modern, stressful, pesticide-filled and disease-filled world that, that we have kind of helped happen. So it's not to say you might have weak genetics. I would urge you to look at whatever live bees you have as resources to help better bees survive. And by that, I mean, for example, if you choose not to let your bees starve, if you go ahead and take the risk, of course, there's risk with everything, of feeding them some sugar and getting them through till spring, then you have the opportunity, because you have a live colony of bees, to requeen that colony with better genetics. So if you have a colony of bad bees, in any sense of bad, however you define that, the only genetic that needs to go is the queen. And once you put a new queen in there, those genetics completely turn over in the flying season about in about six weeks or so. So in my opinion, save your bees, keep them alive, even if those are not the particular bees that you really want to go into the future with, 
but a live colony, you have the option to buy a better queen or get one from a friend who's raising better queens, however you want to do it, or raise one, pick one out of your yard that's better and requeen that colony with it. But if you only have a few hives and let's say you've decided that those genetics are not good, then it's a huge waste, in my opinion, to let them die when it could be prevented because you have the opportunity to go to a queen breeder with better genetics and get one and see how that works in your area. Whereas if you let them die, you are back at the mercy of nuke producers or package producers. And that may be good or bad, depending on where you are and who you know. Anyway, requeening to me is a much lower risk and higher gain action to take. So please feed your bees. Don't let them starve. It is needless. And in my opinion, it's a waste. And beyond that, it's a misunderstanding of what it means to, quote, prop up uh, weak genetics or weak bees. Anyway, I know most of you probably do not subscribe to that if you're listening to this podcast, but I really would like people who have who have read that, usually online or perhaps in their um, beekeeping circles, I want them to understand why that's a shallow understanding and why it is not sustainable, in my opinion, in the long run. Okay, enough about that. But that's a myth. I just wanted to do a moment of myth busting there. So the great thing about getting past that risk of starvation and getting into the actual spring flow, which this is going to depend where you are completely on whether you're way into that already or heck past it (laughs) in some places, and then whether you still have months to go in other places. Here in the high mountains, we're just about to get started on things for us. The things I'm preparing for is getting my equipment ready. It's not January. (laughs) I'm not that on top of things as my mentor is getting things ready, having as much of my equipment repainted, repaired, scraped, and ready to go as I can, making sure that I have extra frames lined up in the workshop. And this is something, if you are a beekeeper that is coming out of your first successful overwinter, so you started last year, maybe with a packager and you, can you build them up and you worked them and you got them through the winter and now they are coming out of winter and you, my friend, are about to start your very first real year of beekeeping because there is no comparison of that overwintered hive and what you're about to see. There's just no comparison with the first year when you were trying to encourage them and baby them and build them up. Well, they are going to blow your hair back (laughs) if all goes well in the spring. The number of bees you're going to see, it's going to get wild fast, or at least that's what I wish for you. So the number one thing, if this is your first overwinter, is to get more equipment. Get your equipment ready. Have extra boxes and supers. If you can, have an extra hive set up. By all means, if you can, have a queen castle Because when you start to see swarm cells or you just have a ton of population, you have the opportunity to make a split and buy a purchase queen, start you another colony, maybe with some genetics that you wanted to try out. You'll just have all kinds of opportunities. But to have that, you have to keep them in the box. And this is the very next thing that we'll be getting ready for is swarm season. It seems like it's starting really early because like I'm more than a month before I will be seeing probably any any swarms. Usually we start seeing swarms around toward the end of, of April. And that is to say if they're not just wildly crowded for some other reason. Like if you have bees, if you've overwintered nuke colonies, they are going to outgrow that box in a flash. The other thing is a lot of times the bees have made their way up to the top of the 
of your boxes. They've gradually, as they ate the honey you left for them, they've moved up and they're all in the top. So often what we find this time of year is you open the box, it looks like there's a ton of bees in there. But then when you begin breaking things down, there are actually a ton of bees in the top box and there's not so much of anything going on in boxes below that. And this gives you an opportunity to reverse boxes if you want. Reversing is one of those things used well. It's very handy. I Because I have all mediums, this is where the all mediums, another place that it's just delightful. If I open it up, let's say my bees are mostly in the top two boxes. If it's a nice hive, that's what I will hopefully find in the, over the next month. Any warm spells, what I will be doing, any warm flying days, I will be going out and really doing the first checks, the first post-winter or late winter, depending on how you look at it, uh, checks on everything. Hopefully, I will see lots of bees, usually up in the top of the boxes. And the simple thing that I do is I check the bottom box or boxes, depending, for, for larvae. I check for brood. Because if there's brood in the lower boxes, then you don't want to flip that box on top. Because think about it, it's like a if you imagine that softball or volleyball or basketball shape in the middle of your boxes, and, and imagine that that's divided over two boxes and they're, they're, that line divides them right down the middle. If you take that bottom box and put it on the top box, what you've done, now you have a patch of brood in the bottom box, you have a space and then you have a patch of brood at the very top. And that is not a good arrangement in late winter because what can happen is if it's on these cold nights, of course, we probably have many hard freezes left for us, but depending on your area and depending on how cold it gets, if you have cold nights, those bees are going to need to cover that brood. And so they're going to have to divide themselves, part of them to cover that top patch of brood and part of them to cover that bottom patch of brood. And what you've just done is you've created a risky scenario because now they're half the size that they were. Because of your intervention, they're going to be keeping warm with half the bees. And so in a way of you kind of double your chances of them getting too cold, they could either freeze to death the whole batch, depending on where you are in your winter, or more likely you could have chilled brood if you don't have enough bees to cover. So you're going to lose some of your adult population and you're going to lose a lot of your brood population. So the takeaway here is you don't split the cluster and you can tell where the cluster is going to be on a cold night. So even if you go in there on a warm day, you can tell where the cluster is going to be because that's where the brood is. And as you picture it, it is that orb, that ball in the middle of a box. And if it's in the middle of a box, then it's pretty easy to take the empty box below that, put it on top of the box that has the, the brood, which will be the cluster. And that way, instantly, boom, they've got space above them. And it is, it's space above the brood, brood nest that the bees are very attentive to on, for two things. One is for space to increase the size of the brood nest. Because think about it, if it's a round orb, you know, that orb is going to get bigger on all sides. And I will say, they do tend to go up. Bees tend to want to go up, which is something I, it'll be interesting to see how, how exactly that works in the long hive that I'm going to try out this year. But anyway, so... That space at the top, this is where it gets tricky that if they've worked their way up to the top of your boxes and you are not attentive to them, it's like they read the roof as, oh my gosh, we have run out of space. They just ignore a lot of times the space below them. Not not completely, but that they will feel more pressure to swarm if they are all up in that top box. And it'll be ridiculous because they'll have tons of space below them, but it's 
it's space. They read again that space above them as indicative of what they need to do. So you can do have a little beekeeper art. And that's where the whole reversing boxes come in is creating space above them. And again, if you do it carefully and don't divide the cluster, I've found it to be very handy in preventing swarms too early. Now, what I'm saying about that is I try not to let my bees swarm. I try to split my bees, which I see as a controlled swarm. I get all the benefits of a swarm. I get to keep the bees. I get to take better care of the bees than them just throwing a swarm out in the world, which they have actually a very low success rate of living there out in the world. Seeley has numbers. I believe that uh, the cast swarm has about a 20% chance of survival. And then the home swarm that's left behind in a wild colony has, I think, about a 75 or 80% chance of survival. But either way, you're rolling the dice on both halves. For me, I have found it more useful to control the swarms. Definitely, I do a lot of splitting because there are tons of advantages to that. You know, there's it soothes the bees' need to swarm, which is their strong instinct. Of course, it's much stronger if that is a second year queen. So if so, what that means is, beginners, if you started off with a queen last spring and she raised a colony that went through an entire um, honey season, it's not about how much honey they made or how much honey you collected or anything like that. It's just that cycle. If they completed that cycle, then that following spring, that queen is going to be much more prone to swarm than a young baby queen. That makes sense when you think about it. Bees are kind of like if you're a gardener, this will make tell what is it, a biennial, bi, bi, biennial, biennial. Oh, I'm forgetting that word. But the one, the plants that the first year they do their thing, their flowers or fruit or whatever, and the second year they go to seed and die. <laughs> and that's that type of plant. There's nothing you can do that second year to make it act like its first year because its life cycle goes over two years. And to some extent, bees are kind of like that because a new queen that has not gone through a full production year, she is working on building that colony. Even if it's a big colony, she's still working on a big colony. Even if it's tight and congested, she is still up to a point going to be working on that. And this is the beauty of a new young queen. There are some people who really poo-poo requeening every year. They're like, well, I mean, and there's there's reasons not to. But if you're selecting, if you're watching that colony to see if they're a breeder, then you might want to instead get out, you know, there's do all the things to keep them from swarming, but you might not want to requeen for kind of breeding and selective reasons. But if you are, well, definitely if you're doing honey, but if you are wanting to just keep your bees in the box. <laughs> I lost my train of thought here. I'll try to get back on. Well, like for example, when I have second year queens, I do not kill them by any means because they have gotten through a winter. So they have something valuable to me and I'm going to be keeping them. You know, I will make splits with them. I'll pull a nuke out of a big production colony that's gone through the winter. I'll pull a nuke of the queen, you know, several frames of cat brood and some staff over to a little nucleus colony, let her start building that one up, let the big colony either requeen, which there's many steps to that. They still will swarm if you just do what I said, and we'll talk all about that later. But um, if you requeen that colony with a fresh young queen, then you do not have to worry about swarming nearly as much. Now, what I do more of is I raise nukes late in the season, late in the summer season, so that the queens have not gone through a full production season. So they overwinter, but yet they've still got all their pep left. They've got the, their 
full young strength left to go into that second year. I found that to be a very good pattern. Late summer queens, the following year, those are my honey production hives. And of course, everybody I'm watching all the time to pick my best queens in terms of selection. But that's how I handle honey production because those those young queens just, you they can get incredibly crowded in, in a good way, incredibly packed with a workforce to bring in honey or to raise more bees, whatever you're trying to do without the urge to swarm. On the other hand, those second year queens, <laughs> they're the ones that, you know, they rub elbows with three bees and they're ready to get out of there. But really, it's part of their life cycle. They've built up that colony, and their last hurrah um, is making another colony. So they're going to want to swarm. So one of the first things I do this this next month, over this next month, is I get in there any worm flying days. I investigate everything. (laughs) I look at everything. I look at their health. I look at how many frames they're on. I look at how many seams of bees there are and seams of bees in the beginners. That's the bees that you see packed in the space between the frames. So it's a quick and easy way in your notes to jot down how big they are. You can look down from the top and say, okay, I see six seams of bees or I see eight seams of bees, whatever you see. And that's just a little ballpark on your population size. But I also try to get into the brood boxes, look at the health of the brood, see how everybody looks to see if it looks like that queen still has strength to build up a good colony. If she looks puny compared to everybody else in the yard, I should say if her brood nest looks puny, if it looks smaller than everybody else in the yard, then I'm going to ask myself some questions. You know, is she genetically in the queen lines that I have? I'm going to ask myself, is this one of those lines of bees that's just very conservative and that kind of starts out slow and is going to boom later in the spring, which that tendency is a very handy to have in a climate here in the mountains where you we can have definitely late spring freezes or long stretches of cold rainy weather. And if you've got a ton of bees already in there, like the Italians, of course, want to build up early. <laughs> they want to stay big late and build up early and go through winter. And the more the Carniolan and the Russian lines, they tend to be much more conservative. So uh, that is a long way of saying it's not to say that just the number of seams of bees or frames of bees that the bigger is automatically better. As with most things, it depends. So I'll be evaluating all that, the health of the brood. And then also in terms of space, managing their space, I will be seeing how many boxes they're in. And without breaking a cluster up, I will add them some space on top. Usually that can be done. And again, this is not right this minute in my yard. It just depends on where the, if they were in the very, very top this early. And let's say next week I have a good flying day. I might add one medium box on top because I can. And that just buys me some time to not worry about that particular hive having enough space. But I'm definitely going to be checking food stores looking at their space. And in upcoming podcasts, I'm going to be talking to you about what to look for before they swarm and what some actions to take that, in my opinion, are much better than allowing them to swarm. Now, you're going to have swarms. That's just a given, unless you are super beekeeper. (laughs) Allowing them to swarm is not something I do willingly. I really, I want to keep bees in the boxes I want to get all the benefits of the swarm without the risks or lower risks and be able to share those bees either with different yards of my own or with different beekeepers or whatever. And we'll get much more into that. 
Well, I think I'm about to wrap this up. I just wanted to give you a little hint of what I'm going to be doing this next week when I'm not working at the hospital. As you can imagine, working at a hospital in this particular season has been a little busy. But when I'm not at the hospital, I'm going to be getting my equipment ready. I'm going to be waiting for any warm day to get out there and do real live checks on my bees. I have been and will continue to keep an eye on their food stash. I thank you so much for being listeners. I kind of got off my off my rhythm of putting out podcasts and I'm going to I think I might have said this in the last one. <laughs> I'm going to try to get back on the rhythm over at Patreon. I for the patrons there. First of all, let me say thank you to them. I appreciate you guys. You keep all of this going. It is thanks to you. And I, as a bonus, I am putting up little helpful hints, what I hope is helpful. The last one was a swarm catch technique that I ran across from my friend Brian. And I think it's just really wildly clever. I have never, I didn't know how to do this. So I put you guys up. That was one of the tips of the week. And then something I hope to start over there very soon is I'm going to do pinned posts, you know, where they stop, where they stay at the top with just links to tips that I find online, like web pages that I consider reliable of how to watch for swarms, what to do, what to do if you encounter various diseases, various split techniques, all those resources. So I'm going to make a post. It'll be a resource post reference list, if you will, and it'll be pinned at the top. I'll also be giving you guys over there on Patreon little bonus podcasts of what I'm doing just around the house and around the yard to do with my bees. At this point, I'm going to call this a fine time to thank the the patrons over at Patreon. So thank you, Kathy Shepard, Tony P. This next person is either K Ness or Ness. <laughs> People can put whatever name they want, so I'm not sure. But K-N-E-S-S, thank you very much for joining. Jenny Sweeney, Show Me Bees, who is another Ozark Bee fan. The Bees Queen, Neil Sellers, Brian Lords, and Kathy Tomlin. I appreciate each one of you. Thank you so much. And I hope to give you bonus stuff over there to make your contribution worthwhile. Thanks to each of you. If you would like to join us over there on Patreon, that would be great. On the other hand, there's absolutely no pressure. The free podcasts are going to go on as long as I can possibly find the time to do them I really enjoy it, and I really enjoy hearing from you all, either on the Facebook page, Five Apple Farm, Bees, Honey, and More, or when you write me on Patreon or by email, blueridge714 at gmail.com. Thank you all. I have some emails to catch up. I will actually go do that now. Have a wonderful week. Please write me wherever you are and tell me what is going on in your bee yard, and I'll share some of those. Thanks, and talk to you soon.